Well, good morning, church. Before we dive into our word uh, this morning, I do need to feel like I need to give a thank you to our two ruling elders, to Blair and to Ladd, for preaching these past two weeks. Not only doing a competent job, but doing an exceptional job bringing the word to us. And so I'm very thankful that we have so much um, love for God's word and the ability to bring it to us. Our scripture text this morning is Psalm 123. Psalm 123. If you would open in your Bibles to there, it will also be up on the screen. But if you are able this morning, out of reverence to God's holy and inspired word, will you please stand as it is read? Psalm 123. This is the word of the Lord. A song of a sense. To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as, a, as the eyes of a servant look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of their mistress, so our eyes to the Lord our God, until he has mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray that as we come to your word this morning, we pray that you would be opening our hearts, opening our minds by your spirit. May your spirit be doing a work, Lord. Not that we would simply know more this morning from having studied your word, but that we would be transformed, that our eyes would be fixed all the more firmly upon you, that our hearts would be pointed towards our Savior Christ, that we would be all the more in love with our Savior, our Lord, and our King. May your Holy Spirit, through your word, do this. pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever experienced deja vu? Right? It's this phenomenon of feeling as though one has lived through the exact present situation before. Or as they say in the Matrix, it happens when they change something. According to studies, approximately two-thirds of folks have experienced deja vu. And despite what you might be thinking, our psalm this morning is not deja vu, although it is very similar to psalms we have already studied in our series this summer. But it is, however, part of a cyclical pattern through the psalms of ascent. This morning, as, as we continue our summer series, Songs for the Road, a study of the, songs of, of the psalms of ascent, we, are, we find ourselves now in the fourth of these psalms. And I want to point out that there is, in fact, a repeating pattern throughout these 15 psalms. There is a pattern in the psalms of ascent of trouble, trust, and triumph. I'm going to put that on the screen. Trouble, trust, and triumph. And they cycle through those over and over again. We have to go through this threefold cycle five times through these 15 psalms. But it's important to note that this cycle is not simply a carousel taking us in a circle around and around in the same places over and over again. But in fact, as we go through this cycle of trouble, trust, triumph, trouble, trust, triumph, there is also a general upward movement, an upward momentum. And in fact, I think this is much like the Christian life. Have you ever thought to yourself, Lord, I have already been through this. Lord, I have already lived through this. I've already learned this lesson. 
Why am I going through it again? Why do you feel the need to teach me this lesson again? But in fact, the life of the believer, the road trip of the pilgrim, is not a straight, flat line. As indicated by the title of all 15 of these psalms, the Psalms of Ascent, they are in fact headed up a mountain. If you've ever driven up a mountain, you'll know that no mountain road goes straight up the mountain. But they in fact curve. And they go around. There are, there are curves and switchbacks. And sometimes even as you are ascending the mountain, you will find yourself actually going down for a time. But overall, if you stay on the road, if you keep going, you find you are, you are making progress. You are ascending the mountain. And sometimes God brings His children through the curves and the switchbacks and through the descents of life, as we are on the road of ascent home. And y'all, he does this for a variety of reasons. Sometimes we know those reasons in the moment. Sometimes we learn those reasons after the fact. Sometimes he's taking us through those times in order to teach us something new. Or maybe to teach us a lesson that we have learned before, but we need to learn in a new aspect, or we need to learn more deeply. So that we sometimes it is simply so that we may learn to trust him more. Sometimes it is for the benefit of others, for the benefit of those around us or those we may not even meet. But it is always, as Romans 8:28 attests, working together for our good and for his good purposes. So now we find ourselves in the second of these five cycles through the Psalms of Ascent. Psalm 123 takes a step backwards from the sermon that Ladd preached last week on Psalm 122, but there is still progress overall. In Psalm 120, the psalmist was surrounded by all by trouble and all alone. And now, though he may face persecution, he does so with God's people. In Psalm 121, he lifts his eyes to the hills, but now he lifts his eyes directly to the Lord enthroned in the heavens. In Psalm 122, we visited the throne of the house of David. Now in 123, we are lifting our eyes to the throne of God in heaven directly. And I want you to imagine for a moment, this shouldn't be too hard. Imagine for a moment a time in your life when you didn't know what to do. I don't think that's going to be too much of a challenge, right? Now, this could be as simple as regular as what do I do like at 445 on a Tuesday afternoon when you don't know what to cook your family for dinner and you know whatever you suggest, whatever you bring home, they're going to roll their eyes and they're not going to want to eat it, but you have to feed them something. It could be a major, something major. Last week, we, we celebrated and we prayed for our graduates and many of them are at crossroads and perhaps some of them are at crossroads not knowing what to do next. And I'm sure all of them will at some point in their life find themselves at a major mile marker, at a major crossroad in life. Do I go this way? Do I go this way? I'm not sure. Do I go to this school? Do I go to that school? Do I pursue this person to marriage or not? Or perhaps, more like the unnamed psalmist of Psalm 123, you don't know what to do in a situation of hardship, in a time of trial. 
Some situation where human reasoning and wisdom and resources are going to fall so short. And that's just obvious, you know that. This trial or hardship that is not easy, you can't just solve it and work it out and figure it out yourself. And this is what the psalmist finds himself in. Specifically a hardship of persecution. This psalm, once again, like many of the other psalms, starts with a conclusion and works through how he got there. We start with fixing our eyes on the God who is in heaven. And then he proceeds through an illustration of such gaze fixing. And then finally we get the reveal of the why are we fixing our eyes on the Lord. The need to be looking to the Lord for mercy. And then finally at the end, at the end, we get the reason why that cry for mercy is given in the first place. The need that the contempt and scorn being endured by the psalmist and by God's people. This psalm is all about eyes and seeing. It's about eyes and the intentional fixing of our eyes and our gaze and our looking. Eyes are mentioned four times. The psalmist is driving us to consider deeply, where are we looking? What are our eyes upon Where is our vision fixed? And upon what or whom is our vision fixed? Psalm 123 gives us three things to be looking at as we are living life on the road. Or you could say it gives us three things, three rightful views of life on the road. We have the looking to our king, or that is a right view of God. We have the looking as a servant, or rather, a right view of ourselves, and we have a looking for mercy, or rather, a right view of reality. Looking to our king, looking as a servant, and looking for mercy. So let's work through these. First off is looking to our king, and that is having a right view of God. The first point is about the object of our looking. I think I'm using the correct grammar. If, if I'm wrong on my grammar, then please give me grace. Um, I was a history major. I'm not an English major. But the, the question is, what do we look at? Or more appropriately, who are we looking at? To whom do we look? Blair preached two weeks ago on Psalm 121. And as we progress from Psalm 121 to Psalm 123, we see that both are psalms of looking up to God. But Psalm 123, however, is much more pithy. It's right straight to the punch. It goes straight to looking to God. And it goes actually, as we work through Psalm 123, we go from singular to plural, from individualistic to corporate. Psalm 122, which Lad preached last week, was a psalm of corporate worship. And now this Psalm 123 is a psalm of corporate looking to God in times of trouble. Who are we to lift our eyes to? The one who is enthroned in heaven. And this is profound, because this is not our normal tendency. Our normal tendency is to gaze inward. Our normal tendency is to look downward, or perhaps our normal tendency is to look just straight horizontally outward. But if we're only looking inward, only looking downward, only looking straight, even out horizontally, we may not see the truth. And the truth is, God is reigning. God is on His throne. But when I look inward, when I look inward, I just see my own sin. 
I see my own repeating sin habits. I see my own sin that I feel like I've kicked a thousand times and yet still keeps coming back at me. When I look inward, I see my own anxiety. I see my own depression. I see my own bouts of imposter syndrome. Like, what am I doing here? I don't belong where I am. People are going to find me out for the fraud that I really am. When I look down, when I look horizontally, I see unjust wars around the world where millions of people are suffering and it seems both sides or all sides are corrupt. I see governments in shambles. I see yet another school shooting and this time at a sister church of ours, a church where I have been and where I have worshipped. And I see that the leadership of our own church is now actually having to devote serious time and energy to preparing for such a possibility in our own place too. When I look down, when I look out and horizontally, I see another pastoral scandal of someone who I respected, someone who I've read, someone whose books are on my own shelf. Fill in the blank. You see circumstance and situation over and over again that may seem like God has abdicated the throne. It may seem like God has fallen asleep at the wheel. And it's times like these that the psalmist is saying, stop looking down, stop looking out, and look up. Looking down or looking out, it may seem like the enemies of the people of God are reigning, but they are not. It is God who is reigning. God is on His throne in the heavens. It is the highest throne there is. There's no higher court of appeal than the Lord who is enthroned in the heavens. The psalmist looks to this Lord. The psalmist looks to the God who is enthroned in the heavens. And there's another prayer that you're probably familiar with that opens the same way. It's from Matthew 6. Jesus, when his disciples ask him, say, Lord, teach us how to pray. It says, here's how you pray. You open, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. When Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray with such an opening, our Father in heaven, it isn't that like, well, you need an opening. It's like the opening of a letter, dear Bill, or to who will make him soon. No, 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 no. Our Father in heaven, when we begin with such language, we are like the psalmist to remember that our Father is enthroned as God, as King, as Judge in the heavens. We are making the highest appeal that a human can make. This should serve to bolster the confidence of the spirits of God's people. Because we are appealing to the One who is our God. Our Father is enthroned in the heavens. This psalm is interesting, though, because it's not just talking about the general trials and tribulations of life. And it's not even talking about just general persecution and hardship that will come upon the believer in this world. It's not just that things are bad so that we, need, so we should lift up our eyes to God. That is absolutely true. And you can apply the beginning of this psalm to all scenarios and all circumstances. There is something very pressing 
upon the mind, upon the heart, upon the soul of the psalmist in Psalm 123. And we don't get that until the last stanza. So I'm going to skip around a little bit. I'm going to go to the last stanza, bring that out, and then we'll come back. And the problem that the psalmist is enduring, that it seems like all of God's people on behalf, that the psalmist is writing on, on behalf of, are enduring, is contempt and scorn. We see that in the ends of verse 3 and 4. Have mercy upon us, O Lord, have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. Our soul has had more than enough of the scorn of those who are at ease, of the contempt of the proud. Contempt and ridicule. Scorn and contempt. Ridicule, mockery. And not just a little bit, but more than enough. He's overloaded with it. This is not just in passing one day. This is the constant, regular overbearing upon his life and soul. Now what sort of contempt? Well, the historical context is not given to us. We don't know who the author of this psalm is. If you look through the various psalms, uh, oftentimes the author of the psalm is given, but oftentimes it is not. So we don't know who wrote this psalm, and we don't know exactly what historical context, the historical situation that they would have found themselves in. It could be that this is God's people exiled in Babylon. But this could be the faithful worshipers in Judah and Samaria before they were conquered. When they were surrounded by idolaters and functional atheists. This could be uh, later in history, at the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, where God's people were returning to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile when the Persian kings allowed them to return and rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. But they endured scorn and mockery from the people that were already there as they were trying to do this work of God. Point being... There's a lot of possible situations that this could be applied to. And even beyond the the immediate historical context, there are throughout Scripture, seemingly almost from the very beginning throughout, both Old and New Testaments, we see God's people are subjected to scorn and contempt over and over again. And I would submit to you this morning that perhaps this is, in fact, the primary form of persecution that a believer in the United States and in the Western world endures today. We are not too often thrown in prisons for our faith. We are not too often beaten or even even martyred because we hold a Bible, because we come to worship, because we profess faith in Jesus Christ. We do have brothers and sisters around the world who are subject to such things. And I'm not about to suggest that uh, mockery and martyrdom are equal on the persecution chart. But they are both on there. And they are both significant. We do see that contempt and scorn for the sake of our faith, because we belong to Jesus, because we claim the name of Christian, is in fact persecution. And while imprisonment and beatings break us down physically, Mockery and scorn break us down emotionally and break us down mentally. And if you hear it enough and it isn't countered, you can begin to believe in a way the mockery and the scorn that is being heaped upon you. You could lose your will to fight, lose your will to carry on, lose your will to carry on the road. And what are we to do when such hurtful scorn 
and ridicule and mockery comes our way. Well, the psalmist tells us what to do. And I would suggest that by logical outworking, we also are going to see what not to do. So the first thing to do, what to do, is point number two, and that is we are to be looking as a servant. That is to have a rightful view of ourselves. The point is, in doing, the point is this, in the one doing the looking, so we know that we're looking to God in heaven, to God who sits in the throne, but as we are looking, what is our posture? In what manner do we do this looking? Well, to make this point, the psalmist gives us an illustration of how we should be looking as a servant to their master. Now, the eyes that were lifted up to the one who is enthroned in heavens are now focused directly on the hand of God as as their master. As a servant looks to their master, waiting for the slightest sign that he has heard. We look to the hand of God, waiting for the slightest sign that he has heard our prayers and that he will answer them with mercy. We see that there in verse 2. Like the eyes of a servant looking to the master's hand, so our eyes look to the Lord till he has mercy. That word till in verse 2 implies waiting. Which once again, as Tom Petty reminds us, is the hardest part. Servants in the context of the ancient world, and actually throughout any context where you have a servant, whether that be a slave or even a waiter in a fine restaurant, involves a good deal of waiting, of standing at attention, ready and waiting. We don't like waiting. We like to act. We like to move. If there's a problem to solve, let's solve it. Let's get to work, let's get to action, let's get going, let's get moving. But in his commentary on this psalm, Martin Luther writes about God deferring his help and what we can actually learn from this. Martin Luther writes this, he says, For in that he defers his help, he does, not, he does it not because he will not hear us, but to exercise and stir up our faith and to teach us that the ways whereby he can and does deliver us are so manifold and miraculous that we were never able to conceive them. Therefore, let us think that the thing with which we ask is not denied, but deferred, and assure ourselves that we are not neglected because of this delay. Our entire purpose as servants is to look to him, is to look to our Lord, to look to our King, to look to our Father enthroned, In the heavens. We look to Him for relief. We look to Him for purpose. We look to Him for validation. We look to God intently, unrelentingly, knowing that we have no other place to look. Too often, perhaps, we we, we will glance at God when we are at the worst possible moment. We will glance to God for a moment when things are hard, but then quickly give up. God, will you help? No? Okay. Back to my own figuring it out myself. Perhaps you know someone. Perhaps you yourself have given up on God when He didn't answer a prayer in a certain way or within a certain timetable. Perhaps you think of the loved one who was not healed, the the relationship that wasn't restored, the marriage that wasn't saved, the job that did not come. But the psalmist models exactly what the essence of faith is. What the essence of being the pilgrim on the road is and is simply looking away from ourselves and depending fully upon God. And just as a servant has come to know 
of the faithful character of His Master, so too we who have been blessed by God have come to anticipate and relish in our Master's continual gracious hearing of our prayers, His gracious condensation to us. James Montgomery Boyce puts it this way in his commentary on on this psalm. He says, this is not an endorsement of slavery, of course. It is a way of saying that the disciples' dependence on God and submission to God should be no less total than the most obedient servant of an earthly master. And then later he notes this. He says, do we look to God like that? Reverently, obediently, attentively, continuously, expectantly, singly, submissively, imploringly? Probably not. But we should. So we look to God. We look to God intensely. We look to God singular focusedly. That's probably not a word, focusedly. Whatever. But also, we seek to be responsive when God does move, when God commands. The servant watches and waits in order that they may do what the master commands. Remember, when it comes to God and me, when it comes to God and you, God is the king and we are the servant. We want to switch that around. We want to turn God into the celestial genie who is at our beck and call. God is not the genie that when we rub the prayer lamp, He answers our three wishes however we see fit. God is the master. We are the servant. We can never get that backwards. We ought not give it backwards. But some people, you know, we, we, we want to refuse to take this attitude of a servant towards God because we don't like the idea of giving up our freedom. But the great paradox here is that you only find true freedom in life by being a servant of Jesus Christ. In his opening letter to the church in Philippi, this is how the Apostle Paul identifies himself. As a slave, as a bondservant, the Greek word doulos of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints of the church of Philippi. Both James and Peter also opened letters of their own this way too. James 1.1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then 2 Peter 1.1, Simeon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. That same word servant is the same word every time, and it's the same word that the most literal translation is, in fact, slave. So in the midst, when we are in the midst of scorn and ridicule, even if we should experience the worst mockery that the world can throw at us on account of our faith, we are to lift up our eyes to our God, our Master, our King, our Lord, our Father, enthroned in the heavens, with our eyes fixed steadfast on our Lord, like a servant fixed upon their Master, waiting for them to act, waiting for them to move. Now, I said there's what to do and what not to do. So what does this exclude? What are we to not do in such circumstances of scorn and ridicule and mockery that we will encounter as believers in this world? Well, the list I'm about to suggest is not exhaustive, and there are probably a lot of applications you could draw from this, but I'm going to give one. One thing not to do, and it's one thing that the Lord really was impressing upon my heart as I was studying this psalm over the past couple of weeks. And that is that we are not to respond in kind. We are not, as followers of Jesus Christ, as disciples on the road following Him, we are not 
to respond to contempt and scorn with contempt and scorn. And y'all, that includes a whole host of things, social media, not least among them. Christ is not glorified when we mock and scorn and make fun of those who mock and scorn and make fun of us for our faith and for our belief. So be very careful how you respond. I would encourage you, I would implore you, as followers of Christ, as those who bear the name of Christ as Christians, be very careful how we respond. And I'm not seeking to bind anyone's conscience, but I will say be very careful how you consume and interact with media, especially satire. But perhaps I've gone from preaching to meddling. But Christ is not glorified when we respond to the world with the tools of the world. Christ is glorified when we respond to scorn and mockery and ridicule, not by returning it, not by jib for jab, but when we respond to that by keeping our eyes fixed upon Him. So if in the midst of scorn and contempt, Psalm 123 has taught us where to look and how to look, well, what are we to look for? And that is point three, that we are to look for mercy. Well, that is a right view of reality. There's a, a Greek phrase that had been common in the worship of God's people for a very long time, kairi ilesion, which is Lord have mercy. Now, perhaps you read that and you are familiar with that. Perhaps you read that and you're familiar with it. You're not sure why you're familiar with that. But this Greek phrase has been used in worship for many centuries. The singing of Kyrie Eleison is a normal part of, of many high church liturgies, Roman Catholic, Episcopal, Lutheran, other high churches. So if you have a background or experience in one of those churches, a much more formal church where it's a uh, more uh, high and formal liturgy to it, uh, perhaps you've heard that phrase and maybe you didn't realize what it is you were saying or singing. But maybe you have not been a part. You've always been a part of a PCA church or a similar church like, like ours. But that phrase, Kyrie Eleison, is familiar to you for some reason, and you can't quite spot it. I'm going to ask you to come back with me all the way back to 1985 and this right here. Mr. Mr. Kiri, all right, it was number one in 1986 for two weeks, and I just think it's beautiful that for at least a couple of weeks, the majority of people in the United States were singing, Lord have mercy, and they didn't even realize it. <laughs> but I'll read the lyrics for you. The wind, I think this is just a perfect song for, for our study and for this song, for our study for this whole summer, and for especially this psalm today. The, the, the lyrics go, the wind blows hard against this mountainside across the sea into my soul. It reaches into where I cannot hide, setting my feet upon the road. My heart is old. It holds my memories. My body burns like a gem-like flame. 
somewhere between the soul and soft machine is where I find myself again. Kyrie Elysion, down the road that I must travel. Kyrie Elysion, through the darkness of the night. Kyrie Elysion, where I'm going, will you follow? Kyrie Elysion, on the highway in the night. I didn't realize how much I love this song. And now it's going to be in your head all day, so you're welcome. It is, it's nostalgic for one, and the 80s are back for a multitude of reasons. Thank you, Stranger Things. But also this song, again, it fits so well with this idea of songs for the road, the Psalms of Ascent, and this Psalm 123 of crying to the Lord for mercy. This is a powerful prayer, Lord have mercy, and one that we cannot pray enough. Calvin in his liturgy had that Kyrie Eleison to be sung after each stanza of the Decalogue, that is of the Ten Commandments. They would go through the Ten Commandments one at a time and respond to each one, Lord have mercy. He prayed a short prayer after the singing of the first table of the law and then twelve times the people sang, Lord have mercy. What we see here in Psalm 123, we see that phrase, we got cry for mercy three times. And you, you may have heard before that in Hebrew... In, in, in the Hebrew writings, to, to give emphasis to something, you repeat it. And so to repeat something three times is the most emphatic that you can make it. This three times repeat, repetition in the Hebrew, Lord have mercy, is the strongest emphasis possible. Another poet once said that he was looking for love in all the wrong places. But this is a psalm of looking for mercy in the only place where you can find it. Psalm 123 is a psalm for when you are at the end of your rope. Martin Luther calls this psalm the deep sigh of a pained heart. He says it this way, This psalm is but short, only four verses, and therefore a very fit example to show the force of prayer, not to consist in many words, but in fervency of spirit. For great and weighty matters may may be comprised in a few words if they proceed from the Spirit in the unspeakable groanings of the heart, especially when our necessity is such that it will not suffer any long prayer. Every prayer is long enough to be fervent and proceed from a heart that understands the necessity of the saints. When you are oppressed and persecuted, when you don't know what to do, when you have had enough, Psalm 123 encourages you to look to the Lord and to cast yourself upon Him, to put yourself in His hands, And to trust Him to do what is best for you, for the kingdom, and for His glory. That we are to look to the Lord for mercy in our time of need. And it is here that we clearly see the gospel. It is Jesus Christ Himself who experienced the ultimate mockery, the ultimate scorn, the ultimate rejection. So that we will never ultimately be rejected. When we cry to God for relief, the answer is always yes. But sometimes it's not the way that we would want it or when we would want it or how we would want it. But the answer is always yes. And when God, when God does allow His people to be subject to scorn and to mockery and to ridicule, He does it for His good purposes in our lives and for the sake of the kingdom. Through the blood-stained cross of Jesus Christ, you have a sure and a faithful advocate who is able and willing to console and to encourage you in the midst of the scoffing crowds because He's endured it all the worse. When we endure mockery 
and suffering and scorn, we go to our Savior who says, I know. I know. I felt that. I've, I've, I've experienced it too. Come, let me comfort you. And even more scoffing is provided. Scoffing is providentially, I'm sorry, used to draw us into greater dependence and appreciation for our wonderful Savior. This psalm, Psalm 123, these four verses, is the cry of the person who has nothing left to do but to pray. When you've had enough, when you're at the end of your rope, when there's nowhere else to go, nothing else to do, don't despair, but look to the Lord. Don't seek to take matters into your own hands, but look to the hands of your Master and of your Savior. Look to the Lord for mercy. It can, it's nowhere else to be found. There is no other source. There is no other place that we can find mercy. Confess your complete dependence upon God for all things. And then through Jesus, we can approach the throne of God with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in our time of need. Let's pray. Gracious God, Heavenly Father, Sovereign Lord, the one to whom we look, Lord, may our eyes never stray from You. Lord, may You keep our eyes fixed upon You that in the darkest times of scorn and ridicule, we don't have to ask, will You help? We don't have to ask, are You with us? We know that You are with us. And Lord, we pray for mercy. We pray for Your action. And Lord, there may be some amongst us right now who are in the midst of the deepest scorn and mockery and ridicule that we can imagine. Lord, we pray mercy. We pray that you would act. Lord, we pray that you would be keeping our eyes fixed upon you, our Savior, our Lord, and our King. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.